Well, it's so great to see you guys, and thank you so much for being here. Um, my wife, Elizabeth, and I, we have four kids, <clears throat> and they are six years apart. So there was a time where we had a six-year-old, and we had a four-year-old, and we had a two-year-old, and we had a newborn. And I'm telling you, um, that sounded like the smart thing to do at the time. Um, I'm joking, sort of. Um, currently, Charlie is 17, Annie is 15, uh, Graham is 13, and Cole is 11, and they are outstanding kids, and I love being their dad. But as any parent knows, when you take your kids out to eat, especially when they're young, it is an adventure every time. You never know what's gonna happen. And for about a decade, um, Elizabeth and I, we spent half of our time in bathroom stalls when we took our kids out to eat. It was glorious. It was amazing. Um, and so there was one time um, a few years ago when our kids were little. I mean, Charlie, he might have been seven, maybe eight, and we went out to eat to Chick-fil-A. Um, and after the kids were done eating, they went and they played on the playground while um, Elizabeth and I, we got some much needed alone time. And then all of a sudden, uh, we heard the manager holler out, hey, stop that, you can't do that, get down from there. And we turned and looked, and Charlie was um, climbing on this black net, um, which was technically the other side of the playground, so he was essentially climbing outside of the playground area. And so as the manager um, arrived at the playground, he scolded Charlie for not seeing the sign and being where he wasn't supposed to be. And so Charlie quickly climbed back over the net and he walked out of the playground area and he came and sat down next to us. And as we left Chick-fil-A, Charlie was obviously upset. And so we talked to him about it. We said, hey buddy, um, the manager, he just didn't want you to get hurt and he raised his voice to get your attention. We thought that was that. We left, um, and we just kind of moved on. Well, a few years later, at dinner one night, we were actually telling that story again and getting a good laugh about it. And then Charlie looked up. Um, Charlie was the only one not laughing. And Charlie just goes, I hate that manager. And we all kind of were like, whoa. Um, and then later on that night, um, as I put Charlie to bed, uh, we were just kind of talking about it, just saying, hey, that happened a few years ago, you know, what's kind of going on? And, and um, as we were talking about it, I just asked him the question, I said, hey, what do you think that God thinks about the manager at Chick-fil-A? And Charlie just straight face goes, I don't care what God thinks of the manager at Chick-fil-A, he shouldn't have done that to me. And so I did what any good dad tries to do. I said, okay, let's pray, Charlie. And then we prayed, and then I tucked him in, and I left the room. Now, that's a funny story about a child, um, but we all have those moments. You never know when enemies are gonna be made. We all, we all have those moments, right? We all have those people that we really don't like. I mean, we, we hate them, sort of. And they become our enemies, people that we are opposed to, people that we are against. Now, some of us in the room, we were raised in church, and so we know you're not supposed to hate anybody. So our way around that is, is we'll say things like, man, I really don't like them. 
um, you know, or they really frustrate me. But what I'm talking about is, is that when you think of a person or a certain type of person or a certain people group, then like on the inside, you're just like, like I just can't stand them. They frustrate me so much. I know for me, I've had that kid at school when I was growing up that I hated because of how he treated me. I've had a boss before. If I'm being honest with you, I'm like, he is an enemy to me. Um, Many of us, we have those experiences. We have that coworker. We have that boss. We have that family member. Um, We have that neighbor that if you were honest, if you were honest, you're like, I hate that girl. I hate her for how she's treated me or for how he's treated me. Parents, what about those kids who pick on your kids on purpose, repeatedly? And you might agree with Charlie and you might say, I don't care what God thinks of them. I hate them for how they're treating my son and daughter right now. And so who are those people for you? And what do you think that God thinks about when he thinks about them? Does it matter? Should it matter? Now, some of you might might say, hey, I don't really think I have any enemies. And that might be true, that might be true. But you and I, we need to be careful because the business model right now for politics, for social media, The business model for cable news and talk radio is to produce enemies. Creating enemies makes a lot of money. And you might have enemies and even not realize it. And so in a day and age where people are spending billions of dollars to create an enemy for you and I, one question that we need to ask ourselves is, What do I think God thinks about my enemies or the people that I really don't like? And how should I respond based on what he thinks? And so fortunately, God helps us out with this question. And there's one book in the Bible in particular that answers this question very clearly and succinctly, but it's one that you might not think would. The book of Jonah is a... um, subversive, upside-down story of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. And as we have Easter in our sights, as it's Palm Sunday today, I thought that studying this book would not only help us with the enemies that we have in our lives, but it would help us understand just a little more of what Easter is all about. And to help us understand the book of Jonah better, I thought, a little context would help us because for those of us who did grow up in church, when we hear about the story Jonah or the book of Jonah, we just think, oh, that's the kid's story where the guy gets swallowed by the big fish. And interestingly enough, as you read the book, that's really not what the book is about. And that part of the story has sidetracked us from understanding what God really wants us to understand in this book. So here's a little bit of context for us. Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And King Jeroboam II was one of Israel's worst kings. I mean, he killed innocent people. 
He was extremely selfish. He used God as a way for him to gain more and more power. And so he was one of Israel's worst kings, and Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II in the year 790 to 750 B.C. Now, Jonah is also mentioned in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, and he is prophesying to um, King Jeroboam II, saying that he would win a battle and regain territory. However, the prophet Amos, the same as the Old Testament book Amos, the prophet Amos, um, he reverses Jonah's prophecy and tells Jeroboam, hey, you're gonna lose those territories because you're so evil. And so even before the book of Jonah begins, we should be a little suspicious of him. The original readers, they were suspicious of Jonah. Another bit of context is is that Jonah is a minor prophet. Now, minor doesn't mean less important. Um, It just means it's a short book, and it takes place before the exile of Israel and Judah. The exile is when the Israelites will be conquered by neighboring countries and driven from the promised land. And the exile was a huge deal to the Israelites. Not only did they suffer pain, um, and they were conquered by neighboring countries, um, and they were driven from their promised land, but God was supposed to bless all nations through them, and if they weren't gonna be a nation anymore, how is this supposed to happen? And so Jonah was a minor prophet that took place about 50 years before the exile. Another bit of context that is good to know, um, it is always important to understand the literary style of anything that you're reading. We get this. I mean, you don't read a love letter the same way that you do HOA guidelines. Um, You don't read a poem the same way that you do a driver's license handbook. And so in the same way, there are numerous numerous literary styles in the Bible. There are narratives and stories. There are laws. There is poetry. There's proverbs. There's parables. There's letters. And there's prophecies. And each one of those needs to be read in the right context. And so Jonah is a narrative story. But it's different than the other prophecy books, uh, because instead of typical prophecy books where God speaks through the prophet to tell others something, Jonah is actually a story about Jonah. So instead of the emphasis on the words from the prophet, it's actually about the prophet himself. And this story is unique, however, because it's written more like satire. It's got all these stereotypical characters who ironically do the opposite of what you think that they would do. I mean, Jonah is a prophet and he disobeys God in the story. And we have these sailors, these non-Jewish pagan sailors who they really didn't just know anything about any kind of God at all. They end up worshiping God. And we have the king of Nineveh who is the ruler of arguably the most evil and torturous nation during that time, he repents and he humbles himself. And so everything in this story is backwards and upside down. And it's important for us to know that as we read it. And then one final bit of context is the book has a brilliant design of pairing and symmetry. It consists of two different encounters that Jonah has with non-Jewish people. 
Um, and it also has two different prayers and conversations that Jonah has with God. In chapter one, Jonah encounters these sailors, these pagan sailors. In chapter three, Jonah encounters the people of Nineveh. In chapter two, Jonah prays a prayer based on what happens in chapter one. And in chapter four, Jonah prays a prayer and he has a conversation based on what happens in chapter three. And so this is helpful for us because it gives us some handles on what the book is about and this is how the book flows. Plus, I just think it's neat that the writer wrote it this way. And so with that being said, let's dig into the story. And so what I'm gonna do is, is I'm gonna be telling the story by mixing in some passages of scripture along with my commentary based on the passages of scripture that are in here. But let me just say two more really quick things. Um, some scholars believe that Jonah wrote the book because only he would know the specific details that happened in this story. Other scholars, they're just not sure if Jonah wrote it or not. I'm gonna be coming from the perspective that Jonah wrote the book. And then the last little thing that I want just to um, address, just maybe some of you guys out here or maybe um, a few of you out here is that um, you might have a hard time believing in miracles. Some of you in here, you might, it, it might be tough for you to trust in the mysterious. And I just want you to know, I can understand that, but I don't want that to sidetrack you from the reason why this book is written. So just lean in, but I'm gonna be telling the story as it's written. So let's start in Jonah chapter one, starting in verse one through verse three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord." So the story opens up, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to call them out on all the evil that they're doing, and Jonah, right off the bat, disobeys. First thing, and this is our first record scratch moment. There's four just big, like, er, like what? Like, how, what's going on here? And this is the first one, because a prophet is supposed to be the mouthpiece of God and obey, and here we see Jonah doesn't. Jonah rebels what God told him to do. And so instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes west in the opposite direction. He hops on a boat in Joppa and he heads to Tarshish. Now, one big question is, is why? I mean, if Jonah's a prophet, why would he disobey God? Was he scared? I mean, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, which is now modern day Iraq. And at the time, Assyria was the most brutal powerful and vicious country in the world did just, just ugly stuff to innocent people. Feel free to Google what they did to people. However, so the story doesn't really tell us the reason why Jonah disobeyed, but just that that's what he did. So as soon as Jonah boards the ship, he goes down below the ship and he takes a nap. 
I guess disobeying God is hard work for him. But he goes down below and he takes a nap. However, God sends a storm. And this storm was so bad that sailors begin freaking out. Think about this. How bad does a storm have to be for professional sailors to get scared? And so um, we're gonna pick up here. Um, the captain finds Jonah and we pick up here in verse six. Jonah chapter one, verse six. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the captain goes and wakes up Jonah and says, how in the world are you asleep? Pray to your God, little g. Pray to your God, or maybe your God will have mercy on us. And I want you to remember this because it's foreshadowing of what's gonna happen later on at the end of the book. He says, maybe your God, little g, will have mercy on us and we won't die. Now the sailors, they roll some dice uh, superstitiously because typically um, people back then when they didn't know what to do, um, that's what they would do. And when they roll dice uh, to find some answers, it falls on Jonah. And so they ask Jonah, hey, who are you? Where are you from? Why is this storm happening? What, what do you do for a living? And Jonah, Jonah answers them, and this is, this is crazy to me. Jonah answers them and says, I am a Hebrew. I worship the God, capital G, the one who made everything, the one who made the sea and the land, which this is the second record scratch moment here. I mean, Jonah, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, Jonah spouts off about being a Jew, about being God's chosen people and about how his God made everything. His God made everything, including the land and the sea that they were on, and yet he's running from this God? How is this possible? Come on, Jonah. So these sailors are like, what in the world, man? What have you done to us? Because he told them that he was running from his God. So they asked him, they said, well, what do we need to do to make this stop? And Jonah says, hey, throw me overboard. Just kill me. Which, I mean, it seems like it's a noble thing to do at first, but it might just be Jonah's most selfish move yet. I mean, think about it. If Jonah kills himself, then he doesn't have to go where? He doesn't have to go to Nineveh. And he's also putting his blood on their innocent hands. So the sailors, they um, ignore Jonah's request first, but then the storm gets so bad that they decide to throw him over. And then it picks up in verse 15 of Jonah chapter one. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the, me, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the sailors, they, they throw him over, but only after they pray to God, capital G, God, Jonah's God, and they beg for forgiveness for what they're about to do. And then get this, when they throw him over, the sea calms down, but even crazier, 
these sailors, these non-Jewish sailors, they began to worship God, capital G, God, Jonah's God. And so I want you, like, do you see the contradiction here? I mean, Jonah's the bad guy. God's prophet from God's chosen people, he is selfish. He is prideful. But these sailors, these pagan sailors who, who really don't have anything to do with any kind of God, they begin to fear and worship the Lord. Mercy is given and transformation happens with these sailors. And so after Jonah is thrown into the sea, God commands a large fish to come and swallow Jonah. God's like, no, you don't, Jonah. You can't get away from me. You can't escape me. And so God provides this crazy watery tomb, if you will, for him. And under normal circumstances, this would mean certain death. But again, like I said, everything in this story is upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death actually becomes his passage back to life. And in the belly of this fish, Jonah prays a prayer, which is what chapter two is about. And this prayer that Jonah prays in chapter two, he thanks God for not abandoning him. And he promises to obey God from this point forward. Technically, he doesn't even say that he's sorry. So I wanna make sure that we're tracking here with this story through the first two chapters. Jonah semi-apologizes here for disobeying God, and he is thankful for the mercy that God has given him, even though he didn't deserve it. And so what does God do with this prayer? Well, he tells the fish to vomit Jonah back up onto the dry land. And he tells Jonah again, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and call them out and say what I, God, tell you. And this time Jonah obeys. And so Jonah gets to Nineveh. Nineveh is this massive city that takes you three whole days to walk through. And Jonah gets about one day's worth into the city. And this is where we pick up in verse four, chapter three. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay, so this is our third record scratch moment here, and I don't want you to miss it. That's it. I mean, it's five little words in Hebrew. That's Jonah's sermon, five little words. No mention of their sin, no mention of how to respond, no mention of who was going to overthrow them. There's not even a mention of God. which kind of makes you ask the question, is Jonah omitting things on purpose here? I mean, is he trying to sabotage his own message? Is he trying to ensure Nineveh's destruction? There just doesn't seem to be a lot of effort on Jonah's part here. And so whatever his motives are, just like back in chapter one, they don't work. Because as soon as he's done with his proclamation, the craziest thing happens. They repent. And when I mean they, I mean everybody. 
Everybody repents. There's nothing more than I would love to do is to come up here and say five words and everybody's like, change, great, let's go. Five little words. They, everybody repents. It's incredible. The people of Nineveh repented and they believed in God. The king of the most evil country in the world at that time repented and worshiped God and told his people to do the same. And the story says in Jonah chapter three and verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them and he did not do it. Now for some of us in the room, those last few phrases, that seems a bit heavy and I'm gonna come back to that in just a second. But just let that tension just kind of hang there for a little bit, but I don't want us to miss a cool part in this section of the story. The last word in Jonah's sermon, overthrown, it means to turn over. Now, it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over, flipped over, changed into its opposite. So, technically, Jonah's words did come true, although not like Jonah had thought. Nineveh does get turned over as the people there repent and they find God's mercy. And this leads to the final chapter in the book. Jonah was super disappointed, super disappointed in this outcome and he was angry. It reads in Jonah chapter four, verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And it's like, what? This is our fourth record scratch moment here. Um, in the original language, um, the Hebrew translates, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah that God would do this. I mean, how could God do this? He knows what they've done, right? God, I know you know what they've done. They have killed innocent people on purpose. You know what they've done to the Israelites. I know you know this. And I just want to reiterate Jonah's sentiment here. To be sure, Nineveh and the country of Assyria, they had done plenty of evil. I mean, super bad stuff. And so it's understandable how Jonah feels. Jonah lets us know right here. Hey, not only are these people my enemies, but I think God needs to destroy them and get rid of them. Don't miss this though. The irony, the irony, if you're tracking in the story, the irony is thick. Here we have a prophet of God who has disobeyed God throughout the entire story. And he's upset that his enemies aren't getting what they deserve. And so Jonah is angry and he prays to God arguing and complaining about this outcome. And it's here that we see the reason why Jonah disobeyed in the first place. It says in Jonah chapter four, verse two, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, Jonah wasn't scared. Jonah knew in the back of his mind that this might be a possibility. Why? Because he knew that God was gracious and compassionate. He knew that God was slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents from disaster. He knew that God was not a God that tries to get people. You see, Jonah is quoting what God said about himself in Exodus 34. And after that, Jonah just says, kill me. Kill me. Because Jonah would rather die than live with a God who forgives his enemies. And so God's response back to Jonah is simple. Do you do well to be angry? God is saying, is your anger justified, Jonah? Do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah just ignores the question. He goes outside of the city of Nineveh to see what would happen to it. Who knows? Maybe they will repent of their repentance and God will destroy the city after all. And this last part of the story, it's, it's a little weird. And trust me, I know you're like, man, how can this next part be the weird part when the whole thing is pretty, pretty strange? I get it, all right? So Jonah goes outside of the city and he makes for himself a shelter and he sits and he watches the city. And then it says that God provided this viney plant that grows, that provides shade for Jonah and this makes him very happy. But then God sends a worm the very next day to eat up the plant and Jonah loses his shade. And there in the heat of the sun, the scorching wind and the heat, I mean, Jonah's just dying because he doesn't have his shade anymore. And he says, God, kill me. I mean, the guy's got a death wish. Kill me. And God responds back to Jonah again, asking him, do you do well to be angry about the plant, Jonah? I mean, is your anger over this plant justified? Now, surprisingly, Jonah answers back, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm mad. I'm mad that this is gone. Kill me. I want to die. And these are Jonah's last words in the book. That's, those are Jonah's final words. Now, God's final words, they conclude the book, and we pick up in verse 10. Jonah chapter four, verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? God says, Jonah, that divine incident, that was a way to try to get through to you. You see, Jonah was all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, hey, Aren't humans, aren't they more important than plants? I mean, isn't it okay that I feel emotion towards a city full of thousands of people who have lost their way? 
that's how the book ends. God asking permission from Jonah to show mercy to his enemies. But Jonah doesn't answer. There's no answer from Jonah because that's not the point of the book. You see, the book is trying to mess with the reader. The questions at the end of the book, they're actually for you and I, the reader. Are you, are we, are we okay with the fact that God loves our enemies? You see, when I read this book, it's like the book holds a mirror up to the one who's reading it. And as I'm reading it, in Jonah, I see the worst parts of my own character magnified in it. I mean, think about it. Jeremy, okay, how, how many times have I disobeyed God when it was very clear what I was supposed to do? Conservative estimate, it's in the millions. I mean, how many times have I run from God when I know full well that that's, that that's not even possible? I have done it thousands of times. How many times have I not obeyed God completely? I mean, I did what he said technically, but not completely, not fully, definitely not willingly. And how many times have I wanted God to do something about somebody else's evil? Do you not know what they've done to me, God? And how many times have I wanted God to forgive me for doing all the things that I just said? You know how many times I want God's mercy? Every time. I want it every time. And so God puts up with the Jonah in all of us. And this should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies. And so this crazy story becomes a message of good news about how incredible and wide-reaching the mercy of God is, which should challenge you and I to the core. And for those of you in the room, if you feel too far gone for God to have mercy on you, I want you to know the book of Jonah challenges this way of thinking and says otherwise. You can never outrun the mercy and love of God. He loves you and he longs to be near you. And for those of us who have enemies, we've got those people where we're like, God's mercy, God's mercy and grace towards us, it challenges us to think of them differently. And so my last question is this. How can God do this? I mean, how can God's mercy be so wide-reaching? How can it be so powerful that we receive mercy, but also we can be merciful towards our enemies? Well, 800 years after Jonah, God sent another messenger. And this messenger obeyed God perfectly. And the message that he proclaimed was exactly what God wanted him to share because this messenger was God's own son. He was the message. He was called the word 
because he was God's message to the world. And just like Jonah, he spent three days in a tomb. He was cast out into the darkness so that we could be brought in. You see, God used perfect, or God used imperfect Jonah to save a city in Nineveh. But God used perfect Jesus to offer salvation to the world for you and I. And so may we know that we are far more broken than we can realize. We're all, we're all just like Jonah, but we are far more loved than we can imagine through Jesus Christ. And so on this Palm Sunday, when it would be just as easy for us to, in one breath, shout Hosanna, and then the next, crucify him, on this Palm Sunday, and as we head to Easter, may God's mercy, may, may we know that God's mercy is so wide, it's beyond our imagination. And may the message of God's mercy in the book of Jonah, may it mess with you and I. And may it humble us to trust him, even in how we feel about our enemies. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you. Thank you for, um, for preserving this story. Thank you for the scriptures. God, thank you for your mercy, which is so wide, we can't really understand it. But I know that we want it. <laughs> I know I want your mercy and your grace every time. So help that to mess with us and to change us so that we can give mercy and grace to others, especially our enemies. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.